Uh, we are halfway through our, or roughly halfway through our study of the book of uh, the book of Judges. I think we've probably uh, grown pretty accustomed to the uh, the cyclical pattern of behavior that we see in Israel. Is anybody getting a little bored with that? Just seeing the same stuff over and over and over again. Does it remind you of anything? What we do, doesn't it? Absolutely. Sometimes I look at this book and I go, man, this book is getting really dry. I'm just, yeah, we're seeing the same six um, cycles, uh, patterns coming through. We're saying the same things every time in regard to Israel's sin. It gets a little annoying. And man, these people are just dumb as bricks, aren't they? Uh, it's so easy to cast that stone. And yet uh, I think we realize, as Grandpa just said, that uh, we are all uh, certainly could see this pattern in our own lives. I'm appalled how often I see this pattern. And so we need to realize again, um, the importance of the text that, we're, that we've been looking through, the book as we've been looking through it, and see that God has lessons for us to learn. Um, we've been recently talking about Gideon. We concentrated on him in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And what we really saw with Gideon, a man of faith, again mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, is an individual who, uh, who started very well, um, who God used in a, in a powerful way, in a, a dynamic way for himself and, and to... Uh, um, conquer that oppression that Israel was experiencing uh, with the Midianites. But as we learned last week, uh, Gideon did not end well. In fact, he had, a, he had a very unfortunate ending. You recall the people came to Gideon at the end after the defeat of the Midianites and, and asked him if he would reign. In fact, were willing to set up a dynasty for not only him to reign, but for his, his children to reign after him. In verse 23 in chapter 8, we see that Gideon's response is, no, I'm not going to reign. God is going to reign over you. Yet, through his lifestyle and through his practice, he did live the life of luxury. And he essentially reigned as a king and had, yeah, quote-unquote, a kingly reign in many respects. Uh, even his son, as we mentioned last week, Abimelech, his name means my father is king. And uh, the record at the end of chapter 8 is, is one that's pretty abysmal. The uh, accumulation of wives, uh, concubines and whatnot, ultimately leads to the regression of the people back to Baalism, and so again, we see that cycle all over again. As we move into chapter 9, what we really see and what we're presented with is the consequence and the tragedy of Gideon's sin and the life of his son Abimelech. Um, it's really interesting to, to note at the outset that chapter 9 really reveals in greater detail the, the subtlety of, of Satan and his scheming, his methodology, his approach, and sin itself. We talked about this, at least alluded to it last week. Up until now, up until this point, uh, in Judges chapter 9, what we've seen are the external forces of oppression at work against Israel. God's divine retribution through using those, those external forces, as I mentioned, whether it's the Midianites or uh, other groups of people, uh, the Moabites, so on and so forth, these have been God's divine instruments. In chapter 9, what we see is a contrast. We don't have an external force at work. Rather, what we have is, is, is uh, an internal force of power and oppression. And so it's interesting. There's some great lessons to learn in this chapter. The main problem throughout the book of Judges is the fact that Israel did not want to be governed by God. They didn't want it at all. We see that time and time again. William Penn once said, If we are not willing to be ruled by God, we shall be ruled by tyrants. Think about people in the world. People are by necessity slaves to someone or something, aren't they? They live that way. 
And uh, Scripture makes it very clear in Romans chapter 6 that people are slaves either to sin or they're slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. Now, the latter is obviously the better position to be in. But without God, without God's governance, without His ruling at all, what you have is Israel in the state of a spiritual vacuum. Okay? And if a spiritual vacuum exists, talk to me for a minute, what happens next? If, if there's a void, if there's a gap, what can be the result? What's that? Absolutely, absolutely. If there's a gap, if there's a vacuum, if there's a void, if there's an opening, sin and Satan will rush right in. Right in. In the history of the world, as I've, uh, I'm, I love studying history, I love watching the History Channel, whether it's modern marvels or other things. It's so intriguing as you study culture and history, nation after nation, where God has been ousted from his rightful position of, of rulership and authority, the end is always the same. Look throughout history, the end is always the same. It's corruption and collapse. Um, Francis Schaeffer in his book, How Shall We Then Live, really chronicles this when he deals with Western civilization. He starts with Rome and, 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 and shows throughout history where God has basically been dethroned. The nation soon, or in the years that follow, begins to collapse. It grows in its corruption and eventually destruction uh, is the result. But I, th- I want you to think for a moment in connection with that of, of this great country of ours. Man, we live in a, a fantastic country. Um, I love being a patriot. I really do. I love uh, cheering for our Olympic squads, whether it's the USA hockey team in 1980. I get so filled with, with emotion and energy. I remember when Robin, me and Robin went to, uh, to uh, see that, uh, that film Miracle in the movie theater. And uh, we had talked about this last week. And, and we're sitting there watching this film, and you can just hear the chants from the back of the movie theater, USA, USA. And it got louder as the movie went on. It was fantastic. It was awesome. It was, it was a real kind of... Uh, Almost, in a sense, a spiritual kind of experience. But I want you to think for a moment of, of the great country that we have. Um, in, in a prediction that was made roughly 100 years ago by this British historian here, Thomas Macaulay, he said, your republic will be fearfully plundered and laid waste by barbarians in the 20th century. With this difference, the Huns and the Vandals who ransacked Rome were from without, and your Huns and Vandals will come from within your own country and be produced by your own institutions. Now think about that, that biting kind of prediction. Uh, in a real sense, the, 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 the forces at work in this nation today are not necessarily external forces. Uh, we haven't had a war on our soil since the Revolutionary War, unless you count the Civil War. It hasn't been there. And so in, in reality, uh, what we're dealing with is not this external force, we're dealing with internal kind of issues. Internal problems, internal threats. They're not as readily visible. It's not North Korea building up its nuclear arsenal. It's not China and all the military might and all the money that's going toward, toward the buildup of their arsenal. It's not terrorism. Essentially what we're dealing with is the fact that we have become our own worst enemy as the God fiber of this nation is being absolutely ripped apart. And I want you to consider that and think about that, especially as we... We look uh, and examine that as, as really the backdrop of Israel in chapter 9. 
Finally, finally this oppression, this ex- external oppression that they've been experiencing is gone. But so is God. And when God is gone, what's left? The sinful flesh. The sinful flesh is left in operation. And so we understand, again, the vacuum or the vacuous state that, uh, that Israel is in. Abimelech is the guy we're going to look at this morning. He's not a judge. Okay, so I want, sure, I want to make sure you know that. He is not a judge. He's not appointed by God. This is an internal problem in the nation. But I want you to think for a moment that Abimelech symbolizes, and throughout our study this morning, he symbolizes the flesh, the sinful flesh. Okay, he's the bramble king. Um, a point which uh, will make sense, I think, in a little bit, but I'll save it for a little while. But for now, he's the bramble king. And perhaps the, the best epitaph to use for Abimelech's life would be the one here. This was used by the contemporaries of uh, Pope Boniface VIII when he reigned during the, the Middle Ages. They said of him, he came in like a fox, reigned like a lion, and died as a dog. And that's the same format we see in chapter 9. It's very interesting as it comes out. But with this in mind, let's, uh, let's really examine the story and let's note some real applications along the way. First thing I want to look at is the fox. Abimelech the fox. This is in verses 1 through 3. Follow with me in chapter 9. Then Abimelech, the son of Jerobel, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you? That all 70 of your sons or the sons of Jerobel reign over you? Or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and blood. Verse 3. And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. Now note a couple things. Probably the greatest contributing factors to Abimelech's life were were his family, his parentage, uh, and his environment. Think of it for a minute. Parents have an awesome, awesome, awesome responsibility. I'm learning that with Avery. An incredible responsibility. Every time I see that, that flesh uh, raise itself up in her life, man, it's scary. And uh, I'm just more and more convinced of the, the influence that both, uh, both uh, Robin and I have in her life and how much we need to guard and take care of that. But... Um, you look at Abimelech, you look at, his, uh, look at his own personal history, you look at who he had for a father, uh, Gideon, uh, the mighty warrior. But you consider Gideon for a moment, you consider Abimelech. Abimelech was, was, uh, was really a product of Gideon's backsliding years. And as a product of Gideon's backsliding years, what kind of spiritual input was there for Abimelech? What kind of training, what kind of guidance was given? Very little, if any. And so it's a real, a real message to us as parents, right? We don't want to, for a moment, underestimate uh, the, the, uh, the authority, the, the correct modeling that needs to go on in the home for our kids. Is your child in a position where they're going to benefit spiritually from your parenting? Do they see modeled in mom and dad this godliness, this Christ-likeness, the revealed Word of God shows so clearly? Do they see it incarnate in your life? It's a real challenge to think about. So not only does, is there a, an issue there on the, uh, the parental side of things, a factor there, but there's also the environment in which he lives, Shechem. First time I remember really hearing about Shechem. Obviously it was at Emmaus, but Joel really brought it out and clarified it for me, I believe. 
Shechem, if you remember, was uh, not too far from Shechem, was Mount uh, uh, Ebal in Gerizim. Do you remember the natural amphitheater that Joel talked about where the Israelites went and had the covenant renewal there? The blessings and the curses? But Shechem had come a long way. This is a, this is a city that is, 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 is really ultimately uh, symbolizes, I think in many respects, the moral confusion of the nation. You have Israelites and you have Canaanites living side by side, but the dominant religion is Baalism. And Shechem really is at the heart of the nation of Israel. The crossroads, everything goes through there. But I want you to notice the vacuum. Okay, back to that word. The void, the gap. Notice the vacuum that exists for Abimelech. There's no king. There's no ruler. I'm an heir. Perhaps a rightful heir. One ruling is way better than 70 ruling. And in fact, I have a, I have a relationship with the people of, Sh- of Shechem. In fact, they are my brothers. This is, all, this is all going through Abimelech's mind. It's all filtered in this direction. All action is, is, it begins to be justified and take shape in this kind of a light. And like a fox, here's my cool looking fox here. Like a fox, Abimelech slyly, kind of sneakily even at first, pushes himself, asserts himself into a position of power and authority. Now think with me for a moment. Isn't this like the sinful flesh? Isn't it like a fox? The sinful flesh is like this, folks. It's always sneaking around. It's always looking for some kind of a gap, some kind of a space to fill. Somewhere in your life that there, there is a void of some kind. It's doing that all the time. It's looking for a place uh, that, it, that it can rest, that it can nestle in where, there, where the authority of the true king is not there. Genesis 4 talks about the fact that sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It desires to master and control you. We understand this as we we look throughout Scripture. It's looking for a place that is open in your life. Just a little. Even Even if it's just a crack, it wants in. It wants in. And folks, if Christ's Lordship can be compromised in any respect, even if just a little, it'll be enough. It'll be enough for sin to come in and and lay that seed, hoping that that seed in many respects is undealt with, hoping that that seed goes unnoticed so that it can sink its roots deep into your life and therefore make it that much more difficult for you to root it out. That's its goal. It needs a gap. Again, like a fox. Scripture talks about catching the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. How true is that? These are the ones that we don't necessarily notice, don't as readily come to mind when we're dealing with them. But they are foxes indeed, and they're sly, and they like to sneak in. And so this is the constant attempt of the sinful flesh to to gain or regain authority, to gain mastery, to gain control and power in your life. Keep that in mind, the fox. As we move on, we move from Abimelech the fox to uh, Abimelech the lion. And uh, having secured his, uh, the support of his family, the support of those in Shechem, Abimelech now sets out to establish his, his power and authority. Read with me in, in verse 4 of that same chapter. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Orpha and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerobel, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son 
of Jeroboam was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together all of Beth Milo, and they made, I'm um, sorry, they went and they made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. A man who initially had no authority, but like a fox, he found some. He found a way in. And now having accomplished this goal of defeating and destroying anybody else in his family who might vie for this kind of position of authority, he destroys them all. And now he is the man in charge. He is the lion in charge. Now I want you to again think about the connection. Think about the fact that there's a, there's a great correlation, a great connection here. Like Abimelech, okay, as we've seen here, the flesh, if allowed, if given any kind of space whatsoever, does not just satisfy itself with the little that it's allowed in your life. It constantly wants more. What is its goal? What is its aim? Scripture shows, shows very clearly that its goal, its aim, is absolute mastery and dominion of your life. It wants power. It wants complete control over your life. You have to understand, sin is not contented to sit along the sidelines of your life. It desperately wants in the game. First it wants to play, and it wants to be the star performer. Next thing you know, it's trying to usurp itself as the coach of the team. Next thing you know, it's moving to a, man a management position. And before you know it, as it's allowed to stay, it's in a position of ownership. Ownership and control. That's sin's goal in every way. Like Satan himself, folks, its, its goal is to absolutely devour everything that stands in its way, to obliterate whatever, whatever authority God might have, whatever the revealed Word of God says, its goal is to bust those things apart and make a place for itself. And it will not cease in any way. And I believe through experience we know this, for those that have allowed it in, and we all have. It will not cease until it gains the throne of your life. That's its goal. And this is sin in operation really as the raging lion. I often ask myself the point, how does it get here? How does it get to a point where we, where we can be so consumed, almost, almost really in, in, in a respect, even though we're children of God, we can be, we can be consumed by this sin, where it can really have, have, have a great deal of mastery and domination. Some of us struggle um, with these habitual sins that we repeat over and over and over again. And though our intent is right, God, we want victory, we want success, we continue to fall into this trap, we know Satan, we know he's scheming, we know it's coming, whatever it may be, but we continue to fall into that. And in essence, the struggle has become where we have separated Christ's lordship from a profession and from a practice. Christ is Lord, we say that, but the practice and discipline of our lives is everything but... Or at times is everything but. And so what we must have is that we learned last, uh, and what we learned last week is the fact that if we're confessing Him, if we're saying that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life, we must make a practice of that. Danger and joy to you this morning. Talking about the fact that they're, they're too much like the world. There's not enough distinction. I echo that. I say amen because it's the truth in my own life. There is not enough distinction between me and my relationship with God and what the world sees. There has to be that distinction. We can be in the world. We can have great impact and influence in the world, but we must not be of it. And if Christ is truly Lord, if He's truly Master, by His power, folks, you need to shut those doors to sin. You need to lock them. Those windows that might be open, shut them. Lock them. If your TV is a problem for you, don't watch it. 
Change the channel. If your internet access is accessing something that it shouldn't, stop it. Because all of those are, are gaps. All of those are places where a vacuum exists. All of those are places uh, that have a space to be filled. And if they're not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, if they're not airtight for God, there are going to be some major problems that result. I think about this, folks, and, and believe you me, as I've prepared this, I think this is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. There is no way I'm going to be able to root out, even in Christ's power, the sin in my life. It can't be done. There, there's, I, I'm such a porous person. All over the place, I've got these gaps and these holes, and I'm hit, I'm hit in different directions. Praise God that He is perfecting something. Praise God that that, that is His goal and that is His aim, and eventually I won't have to deal with this. But for now, in this, sinful, in this sinful flesh, where there's this battle going on, I, like Paul, say, man, I am a slave in many respects. And yet, know what the reality is, is that you've been bought with a price, that you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to righteousness. And operate in that reality through a dependence, a divine dependence upon God Himself. He who promised is absolutely faithful. And so we understand, uh, in some respects, again, the battle that the flesh has. Well, let's, uh, let's move ahead. Recognize these guys? <laughs> uh, verses 6 through uh, uh, 15. I want to take this portion. Uh, this is Jotham. Jotham is the one son, uh, the one brother that escapes. He hides himself and he escapes. And uh, check out his integrity. Many, many individuals, especially if you're the last one, might be tempted to say, forget it. The plan is whatever, whatever plan... Um, of operation that I might have had, and i got to fear for my life, i got to be out of here. There's just no chance I have to go up against uh, Abimelech now and the force that he commands. But check out the integrity. In verse 7 it says there, Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and cried out. Again, a natural amphitheater here, able to hear uh, by the citizens below. He said to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? Then the trees said to the vine, You come, you reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine which cheers both God and men and go to sway over trees. Now think about this. I, this is what I get in my mind as I'm thinking about the trees. That, you know, Obviously we're talking about personification here, these inanimate objects that are given uh, certain uh, um, human, humanity, form, shape, actions, whatnot, and so on and so forth. Um, but I think of these trees here in the Lord of the Rings. Okay, as they're, they're asking for, for other trees around them to come in and care for them, to nurture them, to protect them. Okay, you see the connection here that's being made, right? Uh, the Israelites, um, at this point are not asking, the Shechemites are not asking for a, a, uh, for God to reign over them. They're asking for somebody amongst them to reign over them. Again, you see kind of the foolishness, the futility of it that Jotham tries to bring out. But each of these, each of these trees, the vine tree, the fig tree, um, and, uh, what was the other tree? The olive tree, um, all recognize one very important thing. They all recognize the fact that they cannot accept the other tree's offer. Why? Because they have a king. God himself is the king. 
And so they cannot accept another offer. They wanted to function, folks, folks, understand, they wanted to function as God had intended them to function. And they knew that as long as they functioned accordingly, that fruit would be the result. Should I give these things up to go sway over trees? No way! If I give these things up, I ruin or at least jeopardize my fruit-bearing capability. It just is not going to happen. And so the trees recognize this. They understand this. And I think the application goes without saying, right? I mean, after all, if we want to be fruitful, successful, prosperous in this life, it's not going to be when other things are given charge over our lives and God is dethroned or ousted. It is not by placing other things in charge of our lives that we're going to be ultimately successful. The trees recognize that very important factor. We must recognize that very important factor. We say it. Do we believe it? Do I know that my life will not carry any significant weight? Do I know that my life will ultimately not, not account for much of anything unless God is in charge and in control? That's the lesson that so clearly comes out. Verse 14. Then all the trees said to the bramble, here's Abimelech, our bramble king, all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. That's bramble right there, folks. That's nice, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to use that to build a home or have that in your backyard? Bramble is, uh, is, is annoying. In every way. And uh, it's very interesting, the fact that uh, they've asked the other trees, the other trees have declined, so what do they do? They go to the bramble bush. Does that look like it would provide any shade? Does that look like uh, something you would want ruling over you and taking care of you? In no way, right? The bramble bush, folks, or the buckthorn, if you're familiar with it, is a useless bush. It, ha- it bears no fruit whatsoever. Not only is it useless, uh, bearing no fruit, it's absolutely worthless. And not only that, it's dangerous. When the summer heat is out and it strikes this tree, and this is like a tinderbox waiting to happen right here. Farmers hate this thing and they try to root it out. Because if, if it does catch on fire, look out. It's highly destructive, very destructive. And so verse 15 is, is, is really loaded with sarcasm here by Jotham. Rather than God ruling over you or or even some kind of a quality king reigning over you, you've picked this useless, worthless, and even dangerous individual Abimelech to reign over you. I mean, think for a minute. Think for a minute. You've chosen a bramble king to rule over you. One that can't nourish, one that can't provide for your needs, one that cannot give you the, the sustenance and the protection that you need. It's not possible. And so again, we see the connection. Recognize it. Realize the connection between the bramble and the flesh. Okay, you thinking about it? You got it in your mind? Here it is. The bramble king of Bimelech, right? Like the flesh, absolutely profits nothing. These were Christ's words. John 6.69, I believe. The flesh profits nothing. Nothing. And so Jotham again makes this very clear point. Verse 16 as we read on. 
I'm going to summarize a, a good deal of the rest of this chapter. We're going to move on to the last point. But uh, in verse 16, he says, Now therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity, folks, in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubel in his house and have done to him as he deserves, verse 17, For my father fought for you, he risked his life, he delivered you out of the hand of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day. Killed his seventy sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. Verse 19, If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubel, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. Now what we have that occurs in the, uh, the rest of the, uh, the chapter is this, uh, this curse, this denunciation by Jotham here that goes on, result. It, it comes true. And so ultimately what you read about is you encounter uh, verse 22 there, after Bimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. So here's the pronouncement. If you guys have done everything right, if you've done it in complete justice and complete purity before God, ultimately the best to you. Abimelech reigns over you, you submit to him. But if not, then let fire come out of Abimelech and consume you, and let fire come out of you and consume Abimelech. Ultimately, let you guys destroy one another. And as chapter 9 unfolds, that's exactly what we see. I'm not going to read through it too right now because it, it'll take a little too much time. I've got some other important points that need to be made. This is an important text. I would urge you to look through it. But what occurs here, let me just summarize it for you. The men of Shechem, basically, uh, what they do is, is, is set things up in such a way that, that Abimelech will look bad. They start robbing the highways, which, which shows that Abimelech can't provide and protect for the people. Okay, so they start, um, again, uh, working in some manner to, to, uh, to destroy uh, the reign that Abimelech uh, would otherwise have. This other individual, Gaul, the son of Ebed, in verse 26, he comes in and he steals the people's confidence away. He says, this guy, this guy is ridiculous. He doesn't even live in Shechem. He lives in Orpha. He lives a while away. What guy do you want who lives, a, who lives uh, eight miles away? You want him living in the town with you. I am one that will live with you. I'm the one that will stay with you. Look to me. The people put their confidence, their trust in him. As a result, Abimelech finds out. Uh, these two armies come together. Destruction happens. Abimelech wins. And Abimelech turns on the people of Shechem and he says, You're toast. You've defied me. And so as a result, he burns the city. There's the fire. He destroys it. Not only that, he takes, uh, he goes to the, the tower that's uh, uh, near the city. A thousand people kept in there. He, he throws all the, uh, the, the, the trees up against it, burns the tower, uh, toasts a thousand people, men and women. Interesting stuff that occurs. Not necessarily the king that you wanted in charge, huh? But as we move along, and as we see this, this line in many respects uh, in effect... As we move to verse 50, it says there, Abimelech, after his other uh, routing, uh, different uh, times that he's routed the enemy, he comes to the, the city of, of Thebes, and he encamps against Thebes, verse 50, and he takes it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and the women, all the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. And they went up to the top of the tower. It looks like the same situation. Abimelech's going to get his revenge even more so. Verse 52, So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door 
of the tower to burn it with fire, but a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say to me, A woman killed him. That would just be horrible. So his young man did just that. His young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Here's the dog. Indeed, he dies like a dog, folks. I mean, it's just, it's just like Judges chapter 4 with Sisera. This great military commander goes into a tent of a woman that he thinks supports him, a family that he thinks supports him. What does he get? A tent peg in the head. Oh, man, I mean, that's awful. Right? And especially in this culture, in this day and age, at the hands of a woman is just the worst thing to occur. And uh, what a way to go, huh? So maybe you're wondering, uh, in this respect, what application can we possibly bring out of the dog? And I, I think there's some good application. I think ultimately we understand that, again, with the connection back to the flesh, this is, in the end, sin and what it really looks like. This is, in the end, uh, when sin has had its way uh, in a person's life when it's when it's 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 had its opportunity to reign and rule. Ultimately, what it only brings is destruction. That's what it brings. It wants nothing more than to absolutely destroy who you are, to corrupt and destroy who you are. Sin and the sinful flesh have absolutely no ability whatsoever to produce any kind of lasting success to produce any kind of lasting happiness or joy. None whatsoever. It doesn't, it doesn't produce a brighter future for you. It has no future. Scripture makes that very clear. And uh, what's also clear is the fact that the, the pleasures uh, of sin, the power of sin in your life may be, may be phenomenal, may take you far as far as the world is concerned. Adolf Hitler so readily comes to mind. I mean, here's an individual as well that, in the end, died like a dog, committing suicide. But man, he had this power, and sin was used so powerfully and mightily, and perhaps Satan himself actually indwelt the man. But some amazing things were accomplished, and he almost got the bomb, and he almost ruled the world, and thanks to our troops, we're not speaking German today. But it was there, but in the end, only led to his destruction. And again, its goal for you, its end for you, remains the same. It is your corruption, it is your collapse, it is your demise. Um, James, I believe, the book of James, brings out so clearly that sin, when it is fully grown, what, is it, what does it bring forth? Death. That's what it wants. And so we see this, we see this guy, right? This individual who came in like a fox. Very sneakily. And in the same respect, we understand the flesh sneaking around, looking for a place, looking for a void, looking for a vacuum to fill. It's there. It's all around you. Its temptations are, are uh, innumerable. And in that respect, we've got to be very careful as far as what we open. Catch those little foxes. Not only that, but he reigns like a lion. In sin, when it's given that charge, when it's, when it's, when it's allowed in, it's allowed to, to set its seed and to grow, eventually will take charge. It will kick God right off the throne of your life. And instead, it'll, it'll usurp that authority and take his, his rightful place. And it will only bring ruination and destruction as, as brought out and illustrated here by this lovely looking dog. I do enjoy dogs. This one looks a little sick though. 
The concluding point that I want to make in this respect, and I've, I know I've gone very briefly this morning, but uh, sometimes it's good to have that to be done early. And these are important points for us to, to really digest and think about and be really introspective about. The question really becomes, is there any kind of a power vacuum in your life? In your life at all, where you are, is there any kind of a, a, a position uh, or, or, or a, a fight for control for your life? The answer to that is yes, at least in my case, and, and maybe you guys are unbelievable, but in my life, there is a struggle. It's constantly going on. The war is constantly being waged. And the only, the only equipment, the only arsenal that I have in my defense is the Spirit of God. That's the only thing. And when I rest, and here's the beautiful biblical principle, when I rest in that, when I surrender to that, success happens. Victory happens. Missions are accomplished. When I don't, and when I allow those, those porous areas of my life to not be puttied up and dealt with, that's where that sin begins to enter in. Small at first, like a fox, but if you continue to let it and it goes undealt with and unnoticed, boy, it's like a cancer. It spreads. And before you know it, your entire person is infected. Who was the individual that was brought up earlier who was thinking about renouncing Christ? Somebody mentioned that. Yeah. How does that happen? What, what goes on in a person's life to make that happen? I've heard stories like that. My, my initial reaction might be, well, that person maybe was never saved. But what goes on? Tough stuff, right? Sin creeps in. The world creeps in. The halls of academia, what goes on Capitol Hill, where God is dethroned, creeps in. And all of a sudden you have this major internal kind of struggle in power. Keith had mentioned this verse, or these verses a couple weeks ago. I think they'd be appropriate right now. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Get that? If you're with Christ... Your goal, your, your purpose is to crucify through His power the flesh. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Folks, if that's the reality of your life, it must be the walk of your life. If that's who you are, it must be the action that is shown. Maybe an elementary kind of understanding, maybe we're back to the basics here, but it's so true. The power of sin, its, it's, it's desire for complete conquest, and what we have on our side as far as our dependence on God and what will be the result when that takes place. Throughout the book, we have seen so clearly that when the people were oppressed and afflicted, what did they do? Did they turn to their own military might? They couldn't. They had none. It had to be a return to God. And it had to be placing Him back on the throne. Joel brought this out, right? The, 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 the idols had to be destroyed first. This was so clear. Such a neat point. The idols had to be destroyed first before God could could get the throne again. And that's exactly what has to happen through his power, through his strength. And as a result, the people went on to be victorious. You want these patterns to, to, to somewhat cease in your life? Do you want sin to not have the, the control and mastery that, that it seems to have? The answer again is, is independence. The answer again is in surrendering to God and by his power sealing up those areas and making ourselves airtight for his use and for his glory. Walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. A good lesson for us to, to keep in mind this morning. Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you for the challenge that, again, it is to us. 
God, I, I'm so convinced uh, and convicted by the fact that uh, I, I am, again, a person that, that struggles with these gaps in my life. God, I know that struggle will continue, but I pray that through your power it would, sin will be diminished, that uh, the, the opportunities that Satan has to strike will not be so, uh, so numerous. God, that I will be an individual that will, will walk circumspectly, that we will all be people that walk circumspectly, that we will be people that place the full armor of God upon us, and that we'll be prepared and we'll be ready. God, we know what uh, the flesh longs to do. Uh, we know what Satan longs to do. And so we pray that the lessons that we learn here uh, through the story of Abimelech would be applied to our lives and that we would truly be people of integrity, people of wholeness, completeness, soundness, men and women who are steadfast and Christ-like. We beg you to do it. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen.